Hi everyone, it's Lynn Chen, and today on the Actress Diet Podcast, my guest is Grace Bonney. She's the founder of Design Sponge, which has been around for 12 years. I've been reading this site for all sorts of inspiration, not only for interior design, but also recipes and business, life advice, etc. I also listened to her podcast, After the Jump, which was around for two years. We'll talk a little bit about what's going on with that at the end of this episode. Grace also has a new book out. It's a New York Times bestselling book in the company of women, inspiration and advice from over 100 makers, artists, and entrepreneurs. She's someone who I respect and admire greatly, and it was such a joy to spend some time chatting one-on-one with Grace Bonney. So I grew up in the South, in Virginia Beach, Virginia, which is, I think, admittedly one of the least Southern parts of a Southern state. Um, and I grew up at, related to food. I, our family went through a lot of different food phases. My mom kind of went through, like, I think in the maybe late 80s, early 90s, a lot of, like, Weight Watchers, then Jenny Craig, and then whatever the other system, Nutrisystem, I think, that, like, would sent you meals. So we went through all these phases of cooking where we ate, like, really low fat, and then we ate, like, really low carb and all these different ways of eating. So I feel like I did not have a very traditional sort of Southern food upbringing, except when I went to my maternal grandmother's house who like cooked everything in lard and everything had like pork fat incorporated in it in some way, uh, which was delicious. So that was on one side. And then on my dad's side, my grandmother was heavily involved in this kind of like, I'm, I hate to say this word, but like kind of culty organization in Virginia Beach called um, the Edgar Casey Foundation, which is this guy that a lot of people thought was a prophet. And my grandmother was very involved in it. And so part of their belief system involved eating like super duper healthy. So our family was a weird hodgepodge hod of just like sort of Southern, sort of healthy, sort of diet bad. <laughs> That's the most interesting upbringing I've ever yeah. heard of. Yeah. That's crazy. So first of all, how did that impact? Like, so I'm assuming since your mom was doing all these different diets, um, how did that impact your own relationship with food? Like, were you also subjected to the diet food or like, oh. how did that, or were you just doing your own thing? How, how did that look? Sure. So I, I mean, I think food wise, I, I mean, looking backwards, I can probably point to some places, but I basically dealt with an eating disorder from probably age like 13 ish until probably a couple years after college. And I, I do think that like being around a lot of like diet fad stuff definitely impacted the way I viewed food and especially its relationship to my identity because I, I'm a, a fairly petite person. Um, and I think that that was something that I was often praised for. And I think it was kind of growing up in a culture where like girls who were small were sort of seen as like sweet and good. And so I just assumed that I had to be small in order to be like a good person. And as I got older and, you know, did not stay super teeny tiny anymore, I really, really struggled with that. So my relationship with food has always been incredibly complicated. And then um, I, I really worked through a lot of that in therapy over, you know, the probably past 10 years. And then last or earlier this year, I was diagnosed with type one diabetes, which again, threw me back into this space of like, having to think so heavily about everything I put in my mouth. So it's, it's been a challenging year in terms of fighting triggers. Um, so I think that 
food has always been something that's just, it's, it's a complicated thing. I, I work really hard to make sure that I enjoy food. Um, but you know, it takes a lot of work for me to do that. That is so interesting. I can totally relate to that whole re-triggering via some health diagnosis coming up. I'm sure like as we get older, more and more as health becomes more of a factor and the enjoyment of food sort of takes a back seat, um, it definitely changes our relationship and who we think we are and our identity and all those other things. When you said that you had an eating disorder, what kind of an eating disorder did you have? I think I was somewhere in between just classic deprivation anorexic. And like, I think in, in college, I definitely moved into like sort of exercise anorexia and was kind of obsessively running or working out. I mean, I did like the, the old Tybo video from like the 90s. I've, I mean, I remember in college doing that like three or four times a day. Um, and just just being obsessed with it and, and trying to convince myself that it was about like being healthy and it really was not. But those are those sorts of things you don't really understand when you're in the moment. I just I was at NYU and everybody was like an acting major. So everyone's on a diet and everyone's doing the same thing. And so it seemed very normalized. And it wasn't until I switched colleges and sort of fell into this very randomly like a hippie community. Um, and I got really into fish, <laughs> like a total <laughs> sort of 180 lifestyle change and was surrounded by people who just could not have cared less about their weight or their body or any of that and were very sort of natural and open about everything. And that weirdly was kind of the thing that tripped me out of that and made me look a lot differently at my body. And then I started taking a lot of women's studies classes in college at the same time. And it was just, it was a, a much needed sort of pause button to be like, hey, why am I making these decisions? And why do I, you know, think that what I weigh or the way I look, you know, defines who I am as a person? I just have to acknowledge that you just said two things that like I completely related to, which were fish and woman studies, which was basically <laughs> my college experience as well. <laughs> and I just wanted to acknowledge combo. that. Yes, I, I, it is interesting. Um, but I feel like um, for me personally, it wasn't until like I graduated that my my eating disorder was really at its worst, but for you, it was more when you were in your teen years and your developmental years. So I'm just wondering, as a young adult and, you know, probably in your 20s and you were, did you feel like you had already overcome this and that you were working on developing this new relationship with food or was it still like working through it at that point? I think it was just like, like stage two. I, th I think that like, Getting out of college and learning how to take care of myself, um, I moved to New York the day after I graduated from college in Virginia, so I like had no in between time. And I was um, I was always going back and forth between being a vegetarian and a vegan. Um, and I would say fifty percent of that choice was sort of environment and animal rights related, and then fifty percent was definitely just sort of a mask for not eating a lot of food. And I think when I moved to New York, I just was so overwhelmed by the city and I had a new job and I had so many things on my plate. Um, I mean, that's it's funny that I said plate. <laughs> I'm like thinking I had so little on my plate, but I had so much on my plate metaphorically. And I think that it kind of just got me out of my own head for a little bit. And that was the first time where I really kind of like actually gained weight, like a normal kid in college probably would have. And so I think in that second phase, I really learned to like, 
associate food and the way I was treating it with a control issue. And I was like, oh, this is this is this tool I'm using to feel in control when I feel so wildly out of control. And, you know, living in New York City as a young person and not making a lot of money and having to figure stuff out by yourself. And I moved to New York not knowing a single person. And it was terrifying. And so I think food was this control thing for me. But I sort of switched it from deprivation to just kind of being overly obsessed with like healthy food. And so at least in that phase, I was eating a lot more. And it wasn't until I was older and in therapy for different reasons that I really got to work on sort of the identity layer under things. So I think it's just I think my whole life is going to be a process of, of just, I don't know, slowly detaching, you know, weight and body from from self image. That's just it's a hard lifelong process. Yeah, I think people don't realize that when you have issues with food. It's never, it's not something that you just quit because you have to eat all the time. Yeah. And it's an ongoing thing. It's not, when people say they're recovered, I still think that there's a bit of a, you know, reevaluation of the relationship with food that's constantly happening forever, probably. Yeah. I don't, I just, I mean, I don't, I don't think of it as something that you can just cure overnight. I, I think that. I've learned to like recognize sort of like triggers or urges or behaviors that I know are difficult. Like I'm not someone who can keep a food diary for any purpose. It just, it triggers too many sort of negative habits of keeping track of things that I'm not eating. And so when I first diagnosed with diabetes this year and I I, like literally had to keep a food diary and, and, you know, track my blood sugar every like, you know, hour, it was, it was really difficult to not let that put me into a place of like, oh, okay, I'm hyper controlling my intake again. So this is like, it was like a, it was like muscle memory. I was like, oh, I know how to do this. And I know how to do this too well. So it took a lot of work to sort of get to a place where tracking my diabetes health was not related to weight. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what else you found helpful with figuring out what's working for you in terms of the diabetes? Sure. I mean, it's an ongoing, it's funny. I mean, diabetes has been this like giant sort of wake up call and life lesson and and being present and sort of looking for lessons and things because the first four or five months of diagnosis were just miserable. And I was having all of these other associated sort of symptoms on the side that doctors couldn't figure out. And so I was in and out of like neurology offices and getting MRIs. And I was just, I felt totally out of control. And so when all of that kind of settled down and we had a diagnosis that we felt pretty good about, um, it was, it was basically a, a relearning of just like, this is my new normal. And I really had to identify like what role sugar had played in my life. And I mean, with type one, it's it's not caused by sugar. I think a lot of people don't know the difference between type one and type two. And type one is an autoimmune disorder. And so, you know, I could technically still eat whatever I want. It's just I have to balance it out with insulin. And I'm in a place right now with with my learning that I just I don't want to take a ton of insulin because it can make you go low or you can go high. And it's just it's a little scary. So I eat super, super simply now. And I eat a lot of like lean protein and lean vegetables. And I work out a lot and walk a lot. And it's honestly the healthiest I've ever been, which is so bizarre. And I, I spend so little time thinking about how much food I'm eating instead of just like, is this a healthy balance? Will will I get a lot of like bang for my buck out of this? Because if I have to measure out carbs and take insulin for it, like, is this worth it? So it's, it's just made me look at food as, as almost like a medicine now. I don't know how else to describe it. It's just food feels very different to me now. It feels like a tool. Um, so I, yeah, I guess 
I don't know. I, I think that's sort of where I am with it right now. And I, I fully expect myself to feel differently in a few months because there's just there's such a huge learning curve with a disease like this. Yeah. You're married to Julia Tertian, who is well known in the food industry. And I'm just wondering how that changed. I don't know what your home life looks like, but did it change your home life in terms of the food? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I was the type of person that before I met Julia, I would like order a pizza and like a whoopie pie and eat that all weekend, like slowly as one person. <laughs> and then and Julia is like the world's healthiest human being. And she's so active and so knowledgeable about I mean, the amount of things she knows about food. I and mean, she knew more about food and its ability to help me with certain health issues. Like she knew more than most of the doctors I've spoken with, frankly. And, and that it just never ceases to amaze me and make me feel so incredibly thankful to share my life with somebody that that is such a huge help and asset and support. And I think getting this diagnosis, if I had been by myself, I just I shudder to think at what my life would be like right now, because she made it all easy. She made all of these food changes and having to think about food this often and working through all of the triggers that it brought up. I mean, she made all of that simple. And so She's kind of helped me look at eating eating differently, and we do a lot of cooking at home. I would say we cook like ninety nine percent of our food at home, and it makes it makes it easy to feel calm about food because I know what's going into it. And when you eat outside or eat at a restaurant, it's just there's so many things that are hidden and put in food that you don't know about. Um, and if you're somebody who has a non functioning pancreas, that makes life really scary and difficult. So she's just helped me feel more control of things, which is just so wonderful. That is that is really nice. Actually, you talking about going from that switch from like eating pizza and whoopie pies to <laughs> home cooked meals, I'm like, it can be done. I know. It can be done. I know it can be. It's just that switch. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that switch and whether it was difficult for you? Yeah, it's funny. This is so I haven't thought about this since January when I really like worked through it, but I had this weird identity hang up um, and my, my therapist calls them sticky beliefs, which are just like the story you tell yourself that you think is true. And I really thought that part of my identity was I was the person who could eat like my weight in cake. And I just I like loved anything sweet and was obsessed with like any form of cake and cookies and whatever. And anytime we went out, I was like the small person who ordered like a piece of cake the size of her head. And it was like this funny talking point. And I was like, well, who am I if I don't do that anymore? Like, that's the thing that's fun about me. And then I realized like how weirdly I had hung up my identity on kind of like almost like binge eating in a way. And it was a weird thing to have to work through because I just, I had to let that, I had to let that go and kind of understand why I thought that that was the only fun part of my personality. So that was a weird sort of side product of, of working through that. And, and Julia definitely helped me kind of hone in on that and then realize like, again, that food and my body and all of that, like does not define who I am. And it helped me kind of, it was a nice pivot point to realize like, okay, I have this, this project, the book coming out this fall. And that to me feels like it really represents who I am and what I believe in. And so it helped me kind of walk away from food a little bit and, and not be quite so obsessed with that and say like, hey, here's this other thing I'm working on that I'm really proud of that I do feel like represents who I am and what I believe in right now. And it was a kind of slow, gradual pivot point away from like a winter full of food obsession to something more positive. This is actually your second book, correct? 
It is, yeah. It's my second. And I'm wondering if when you were doing the first and this book, if you had any food rituals revolving around writing them. No, because I mean, both of these books were both my first book and my second book for very different reasons were written like under super difficult time um, tables. And I wrote my first book, I believe in like maybe three months. And typically people spend like a year writing a book. And then I spent two months writing this second book because I was supposed to write a very different book and just didn't, I just wasn't into the idea anymore. My heart wasn't in it. And so I was about to give my advance back and I changed topics and asked if they would at all be interested in a book about business instead of a book about do it yourself projects. And thankfully my publisher was totally into it, but she was like, you have the same deadline. So let's see if you can get it done. And so it was this just totally nutto, like traveling around this, like the whole country, really interviewing over a hundred women, taking their portraits, and there was no time to eat normally or even think about food on that trip. It was just like go, go, go. We would interview or photograph at least five people a day, and it was just really, really intense. So it was actually one of those nice periods where I just didn't think about food, and that for me is actually always a good place to be in. Yeah, I get it. I, I'm wondering if you look back at that intense time very fondly. Is it something you would want to experience again? Or are you sort of like, that won't happen again? I do. I loved it. This one I loved. The first book I didn't love. The first, I loved that book, but the, the writing process was stressful. And I had it was just confusing. And I, my editor left while I was working on that book. And I kind of was on my own. And I had never written a book. And I just felt overwhelmed. And this felt totally different. This was like the best like road trip summer camp experience you could ever ask for. And it was, you know, meeting with five people a day that I, I consider to be like mentors or idols or people that I look up to. And we would get to see them all like so many of them every single day. And it was just this like high that it was really difficult to come down from because I had never gotten to be around so many inspiring people in such a short amount of time. And I would, I mean, I would do that again in a heartbeat. That sounds awesome. And congratulations on all the success with the book. Thanks. Yeah, it's been it's it's been kind of a dream come true. It's it was a great lesson in taking a risk and sort of telling someone or asking someone, you know, if you can do the thing you really want to do and getting to to bring this book to life was just it was just such an honor. I just loved it. Yeah, it's super inspirational. It really is. Um, I am wondering when you guys entertain, what would somebody expect to eat? It depends on who's coming. Julia is inc- is the most accommodating chef in the entire world. And we, in our immediate family, we have – so I have type 1 diabetes. My dad has type 2. Our sister-in-law has like 16 like deadly allergies ranging from chicken to, you know, nuts. Um, um, our brother-in-law is a vegan. Uh, so there's like – there's a lot of rules in our immediate family of what we can and can't eat. So most of our meals involve – some sort of like huge leafy green salad that everyone can eat, some sort of cooked green that the vegans and me can eat a lot of. Um, There's always some sort of like sweet potato with beans or something like that, some sort of like heartier salad. And that always is sort of aimed at the vegans as well as those of us who are trying to eat more vegetables. And then there's always some sort of lean protein. I mean, depending on the season, it'll either be pork tenderloin or chicken or in the summer, Julia loves to like sear fish outside on like a cast iron skillet on the grill. 
Um, so it's always, it's always like very just simple and straightforward. I don't, I don't like the word clean in relation to food because I feel like I understand what people say. And I think that is how we eat, but I think it implies that some food is like somehow bad or dirty. And I just don't think that's the case. Um, but we, Amen. yeah, I just, I, I, I'm not a fan of packaged, like super packaged food or super processed food, but I think for a lot of people, that's the only food they have immediate access to. And I just, I think words like clean make people feel judged or something. So I, I think instead I just try to think of wheat really simply. There's like not a lot of layers of stuff. Julia's great at using like interesting spices, but nothing gets fussy. And I think everyone feels comfortable when food isn't fussy. Did the, did the form of the food sort of change when you guys moved away from the city? In a way. Yeah. I, I think it became, um, in a way, I think, I think, I mean, this is, I feel even bad answering this cause I'm not doing most of the cooking, but ah. Um, I do a lot of the dishes. I, I try to do the cleaning up part. Um, but Julia has always been just a really gracious cook who cooks simply but does cook like like there are always a lot of options. There's always lots of things to eat. And she was doing that with like one square foot of counter space in Brooklyn. And now we have like an excessive amount of counter space. So I do think she feels more comfortable like making a lot of things ahead of time because there's room to like leave them on the counter and just rest. And we like to eat a lot of things just like at room temperature. So you can eat when people get here and it's not the stressful thing of trying to time things perfectly. So I, I think she does really take amazing use of all that space now. So there's always going to be like several options. But I think part of that is just Julia really, really loves to cook and enjoys it. And we are all and our family and our friend group are just we're very lucky to be around somebody who does enjoy that so much. So there's always a lot of stuff to eat. Do you do any cooking? <laughs> I do. I typically cook breakfast for us. Um, breakfast is kind of my jam. I, I love breakfast food. Um, I've had to rethink what breakfast means to me, though, because it used to just mean like I make a mean pancake and that's just not an option anymore. So I make um, like these really high protein, high fiber waffles now that Julia also loves. I'll make. I make is that what you sent me a photo of? Yes, they are the best. They're so good. Where can um, we find the recipe? I will send you the link. I got it from, I like basically um, modified a little bit of a recipe that's sort of a low carb fellow type one blogger. And it uses a lot of like Greek yogurt and protein powder and not things that I eat. I like to eat a ton of, but when I really miss like having a stack of something like as a breakfast option that feels like very carby, these are a great solution because they have so much protein in them that if you are somebody who has diabetes, whether it's type one or type two, they sort of break down very slowly and your system can handle the sugar in them a lot better. And there's not a lot of sugar anyway, but there are a decent amount of carbs. So it's just easier to break down. So I cook as that. I make kimchi eggs a lot. Um, mm. Kimchi is so good for you. And I, I actually cook Julia's kimchi fried rice all the time. <laughs> Isn't it good? It's so yeah. good. I think it's people are intimidated by kimchi sometimes, but I, I feel like it's starting to have a moment, at least here in New York. Like it's, it seems to be like in everything we see in restaurants now, which is so great. So you said kimchi eggs? Yeah, we'll make like eggs with kimchi, sometimes a little bit of cheese. Um, we'll either, sometimes we'll eat that plain, we'll make a salad. Um, I have these like almond flour tortillas that I love that I'll cook those with. Um, but I typically do breakfast and coffee because I usually wake up um, a little bit earlier. And so I'll like handle all the pets in the morning and make breakfast and coffee. And then Julia typically does lunch and dinner. Um, and then 
I would say sometimes we have one meal out a week, maybe, but we really like cooking at home and we batch cook a lot. So Julia will make like a ton of roast vegetables or roast a bunch of sweet potatoes or cook a bunch of greens. And then all we have to do is like throw some sort of low, you know, like simple protein on the grill or on the stove and just throw it all together and then it's easy. So we, we try to make cooking as easy as possible. The holidays are coming up and a lot of people are already asking me about what my favorite food gift is Ooh. to give. And I'm wondering what your favorite food gift to get would be. Oh, oh, it's so hard now. Um, God, what do I eat? I mean, the only dessert I really allow myself anymore is like a little bit of dark chocolate. So every now and then Julia's friends from the city always seem to come up with like these amazing, like kind of obscure bars of dark, dark chocolate with interesting things in them. And those are, are really nice. But Julia sort of turned me on to the idea of food gifts being things for the host to enjoy the next morning. So like breakfast gifts, um, because that way you don't feel obligated to like open them and share them with all the guests that evening and sort of add something else to your to-do list. So I love like if people have given us like bags of coffee before um, or like, you know, mixes for pancakes or whatever. And I think that's it's a, it's a fun idea because then you get to kind of enjoy it the next day when it's just you and your family again. So I love that sort of stuff. That's brilliant. I've never thought of that, of giving a gift that they could enjoy the next day. It's nice because there's no, pre there's no like, oh, here, I mean, I love getting flowers, but it's like, then you've got to stop what you're doing and get a vase and find a place for them. And I mean, these are all wonderful problems to have, but I think something you can give a, get a host that says like, here, you don't have to do anything right now, but I hope you can enjoy this tomorrow when things are quiet and it's just you guys. So I like that. When you do go out to eat that one night a week, where do you like to go? Well, there's nowhere to eat where we live. We live um, in a tiny farming town on the Hudson Valley that really is like there's just not a lot to eat here. Um, every now and then we like to go across the river uh, to a restaurant called Gaskins, which is in a town called Germantown um, off the Hudson River. And it's a wonderful restaurant run by a young couple, Nick and Sarah. And we love to go there. Um, I mean, it can be difficult for me to eat out because – I have become that person that I like get a little annoyed with in restaurants where I have to ask a million questions like, okay, well, does that sauce have flour in it? Does it have cornstarch? Like, are there sweeteners added? Like, there's all this stuff that I have to ask to just make the most educated insulin decision that I can. So when we eat out, we try to eat places where those sorts of questions will be easier to answer. Um, it's made my favorite type of food, which is I, my favorite food of all time is, is Vietnamese food or Thai food. And that can be really challenging um, as a type one diabetic because there are a lot of like sweeteners and cornstarch and syrups and things that are delicious, but are really difficult to kind of quantify and then balance with insulin. So we can't really eat out the way we used to, which was a lot of Asian food. So we do tend to eat a lot of like pretty simple, homey American food when we go out now. And what about places in the city? Are there any like go-to places that might be accommodating to you now? Um, well, yesterday we went into the city because we both had a work event and we ended up at the Chelsea Market, which I was like, oh, I don't know how I'm going to eat here. But we went to, um, I'm probably going to mispronounce this, but Num Pang or Num Pong, I'm not sure, the like, amazing Vietnamese sandwich place. And they had a salad option that I totally ate that was just like green curry with chicken and like a really crunchy salad that had um, some like fried shallots and what else, and like peanuts. And I just didn't put the dressing on it because it was super sweet. Um, 
but that was great. So I'm, I'm getting more adventurous and a little bit less afraid. So I think as time goes on, I'll, I'll feel more comfortable to eat out more. Thank you so much for taking the time with me today. I feel like I've learned so much about you and about your history with food. And I really want to thank you for being open and honest and sharing your past struggles. Thanks. No, and, I and your present struggles <laughs> as well. Oh, the struggles. Yeah, it's important to talk about that stuff. I mean, I feel like my new book is all about talking about that related to work. But I think it's important to talk about those things for life too because – Nobody's got it all figured out. <laughs> no, that is for sure. That is for sure. Even the people you think who are the experts, they oh, don't yeah. always have it figured Everybody, out. Everybody's got a rough a rough day or a rough time period. Like everyone goes through that. Yeah. Well, thank you again. And if anyone wants to find you, how can they connect with you? Sure. They can check me out at designsponge.com. And all my social handles are just Design Sponge. And the new book is called In the Company of Women. Oh, one more question. Yeah. I want to know about your podcast. Oh, that, sure. That has not been around since 2015, but are you starting up again? I am working on some a version of it for next year. And Julia and I are also kind of playing around with something we might collaborate on. Um, but it's funny. I started back in 2013, I think, podcasting. And it was such a different world then of like nothing was sponsored. Everything was like super low budget and low fi And now things are so highly produced and with sponsors. And so I kind of feel like I'm entering in the, the midway point of something that I don't understand anymore. So I'm kind of taking my time and figuring out the best way to produce it that makes sense because I used to record in a studio in Brooklyn and somebody took care of all the editing and recording and broadcasting for me. So trying to find a similar situation up here in the Hudson Valley. So as soon as I can find it, hopefully it'll be back next year. Okay, good. I, I look forward to listening when that happens. Thanks.